That's three years working in an auto manufacturing facility that has OSHA fines against it of $50,000 at the same facility where uh, prison labor is being used. Now, free labor is being paid $11 an hour, and Governor Ivey is telling us that is highly paid. Governor Cat Ivey claimed that because of the union drive, that the state's, quote, model for economic success is under attack, end quote. Wow, Alabama. That kind of sounds like what you were saying during the fucking Civil War. <laughs> I think the answer is the only way to do it is to unionize and, right. you know, sometimes the threaten to strike because obviously they're not going to pay us out of the goodness of their hearts and because we're good at doing our job. On the 6th of February 2006, 6,000 workers at the Bridgestone Firestone rubber plantation in Harbell, Liberia, walked out on wildcat strike in protest at low pay, poor conditions, child labor and union corruption. You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast, weekly produced by the Labor Radio Podcast Network, laborradionetwork.org. I'm Chris Garlock. On today's show, Hyundai workers sign union cards, more on UAW organizing, Cord Jefferson and USC adjunct professors fight for a union, and remembering the 2006 Liberia Firestone strike, plus on Labor History in 2. The year was 1937. That was the day Sheriff Theodore Middleton and his deputies in Harlan County shot into the house of UMWA organizer Marshall Music, killing his 15-year-old son, Bennett. This week's featured shows are the Valley Labor Report, which is a weekly talk radio show airing Saturdays from 9.30 to 11 a.m. Eastern on WVNN 92.5 FM and Huntsville, Alabama, and from 8 a.m. to 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Sundays on WGOL 9.20 a.m. in Russellville, Alabama. Work Stoppage, a podcast that only talks about what can be done for the working class. Third and Fairfax, news and information about the Writers Guild of America West. On This Day in Working Class History, daily briefings, of On This Day, People's History Anniversaries, every day of the year from the Working Class History team. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. The story of Alabama is a story of not just resilience, but of militancy. If we ain't all free, ain't none of us free. You're listening to Alabama's only union talk radio show, The Valley Labor Report, with Adam Keller and Jacob Moore. So the 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 news, the latest news from Hyundai in Alabama, is, or from, from the UIW in Alabama, is that workers at Hyundai hit 30% card signed. So 30% of the workers in fi- the 5,000 person factory in Montgomery uh, have now signed cards uh, saying that, that they want to be a part of the United Auto Workers. Um, so that's a big milestone. They held a forum a week and a week and a half ago, something like that. And uh, so they're moving along very quickly with this campaign. Um, and 
the uh, they <laughs> they actually announced it immediately after the Business Council of Alabama announced their campaign. So that was a really good, um, you know, that that the timing worked really well for the auto workers there being able to announce this victory immediately after the declaration of war by Alabama's business class. One of the common talking points is that Alabama's auto workers are highly paid highly paid and so they uh they said that they're some of the lowest paid auto workers in the country and in the press release announcing this um that that they sent to me as well some of them talked about their pay one of the people um involved in the campaign ronald terry said i was a temp at hyundai from 2014 to 2017 i made eleven dollars and three cents an hour the entire time that's three years working in an auto manufacturing facility that has osha fines against it of fifty thousand dollars for amputation and crush hazards at the same facility where they found child labor at the same facility where uh prison labor is being used now free labor is being paid $11 an hour, and Governor Ivey is telling us that is highly paid. Highly paid. They uh, And Ronald Terry continued, they kept saying, just wait a little longer. You'll make it to full time. I finally did, but the pay is still mediocre. With the union, we can bring our pay and benefits up to a higher standard. That's how you motivate your workers. It's not just good for us, it's good for the product we produce. <laughs> Uh, and that's obviously true. Another uh, Hyundai worker who does body shop control, Dwayne Naylor, said, my oldest son works at the plant over on General Assembly. I went through 14 years in General Assembly, and I know what it'll do to your body over there. I don't want the younger generation to go through what we did. Over the last 10 years, most of my raises have been just 12 or 13 cents an hour. The price of their cars, they go up every year, but my pay don't. If we don't get the union here, our pay will never keep up. They also talk about how um, they the retirement is not good. I'm getting close to retirement, and the company has literally broken me down. We need comp compensation for that when we retire, not just a cake and a car discount for a car we can't afford to buy because we don't have any income. We need a real retirement. We need to win our union. They also talked about the injuries in the shop. And that's another thing that these people, Governor Ivey and the business class in Alabama, are telling us. They're saying that these auto workers are not only highly paid, but these are high-quality jobs. And so when you talk about a high-quality job, you assume that that means the working conditions are good. Well, Peggy Howard who works on F1 Final in General Assembly. She said, when you're injured, management pushes you back on the line too soon. I had a surgery on my rotator cuff in September, and I had to go back to work the last of December. I didn't get the two weeks ramp up, and now I'm having pains all over again. I had cortisone injection three weeks ago, and I'm about to go back for another injection. If that doesn't work, the doctor told me he'll have to do the surgery over again. This is because she wasn't able to take the proper amount of rest. We need to make our job safer. We need the union. Find us online, Facebook, YouTube, The Valley Labor Report. Uh, if you're not able to do that, see you next week, folks.
Welcome to your favorite labor podcast, Work Stoppage. My name is John. I'm Dan. And I'm Lena. And we're an entirely listener-supported show, so thank you so much if you support us on Patreon. It's the only way we get any funding. Hop in the Discord if you're not already in there. It's the only way we get to talk to you. Uh- in addition, of course, to you know, continuing to organize within the supply chains of the big three, obviously one of the biggest organizing stories in recent memory has been the attempts by the UAW ongoing to now organize the entire non-union auto sector in the United States. And part of that, as that we've been talking about recently, has been the organizing by auto workers at Mercedes-Benz outside Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And in the weeks since that drive was announced, boy, has the local ruling class got real mad. (laughs) Uh, and, And they've gotten so spooked that they've launched into a brazen open assault on the rights of workers to organize. Uh, local business owners and their paid politicians have launched a glossy anti-union website, Alabama Strong, full of all the classic <laughs> union-busting lies. And But they're not just doing, you know, it's not just the Chamber of Commerce getting in on this, who, who you'd expect, that, that basically this is why they exist, to prevent unions from forming. But it's not just them, you know, their politicians are getting really directly involved. You know, as reported by AL.com, Alabama's Commerce Secretary, Ellen McNair, said publicly, quote, the days of Alabama being a premier destination for industry investment may be coming to an end, end quote. And Governor Cat Ivey claimed that because of the union drive, that the state's, quote, model for economic success is under attack, end quote. Wow, Alabama. That kind of sounds like what you were saying during the fucking Civil War. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, no, because that's the thing. I, I love seeing some of these because, like, it tells us so much. Because, mm-hmm. like, because this is the thing. There's, like, the UAW organizing at Mercedes is putting our model of economic success under attack. I'm like, you realize that people hear you say those things, and and people can think about your statement for more than five seconds. Yeah. Oh my God, he admitted. <laughs> yeah, because I'm like, I'm like, you're just saying that your model of economic success in the biggest quotes in the fucking world is based entirely on paying your workers shitty wages. Like you're not supposed to say that part out loud. <laughs> it, and it's 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 fucking wild, but. I think ultimately it's it's also good because again this is it falls into you know that Mao's one of his famous aphorisms you know to be attacked by the enemy is a good thing not a bad mm-hmm. thing and I think the the open and brazen involvement of the the politicians here shows that Mercedes is worried about this drive and they really think they need to call in favors and help from anybody that they possibly can. Because this is the sort of thing where if you do it too hard, if you like it can be very obvious to the workers involved, they're like, "Why the fuck is the governor talking about this shit? <laughs> like, we work here, she doesn't. Like, why is she getting involved?" And that, you know, starts to reveal a lot more things. And so and the thing is in response, workers have not been intimidated and not just the workers at Mercedes-Benz, because the day after that, the Commerce Secretary's comments about how, oh, Alabama's not going to be a premier destination, well, the UAW announced another major organizing drive in Alabama had hit 30% of workers signed up, this time at Hyundai. 
in the announcement of the drive at Hyundai in Montgomery. It came alongside an announcement from the UAW that they now had over 10,000 non-union auto workers sign union cards in less than 90 days since the stand-up strike. But what I was alluding to was uh, how it is not that difficult to see how uh, someone like Elon Musk uh, uh, ends up telling the the Tesla workers that they are going to end up having to, quote, sleep on the line, end quote, to meet production quotas. That's the kind of thing that we, like what Dan was alluding to with from the ruling class, uh, oh, things were bad and they're going to stay bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, so. they're gonna get they're gonna get worse because not only are you gonna have to sleep on the line, you're gonna have to listen to Elon Musk tell you to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh, yeah. No yeah. kidding. Welcome back to Third and Fairfax, the official podcast of the Writers Guild of America West. Today we have Dara Resnick and Peter Gamble, two adjunct faculty members at USC School of Cinematic Arts. Ex- can explain for us, like people don't know anything about academia or higher education, yeah. like what is an adjunct professor um, um, versus a tenured one? Well, uh, so back in like the 70s, most about 70% of the professors would be full-time professors, Yeah. right? And then about 30% would have been adjuncts who come in and teach a class or two over However many years, it's the opposite now. At, at, at SCA, it's 70% adjunct professors, 30% full-time and tenured, mm. right? Now, I mean, there's 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 great things about that because we're in the industry. It's an industry that moves really quickly. We can bring cutting-edge knowledge. There's things that are not so good about that, which we get paid a fraction of what they pay other people, you know, a percentage of it, like, you know. Um, and uh, that is, is a struggle. So, I, I mean, I could say I, I've been teaching at USC for 14 years. I went to USC, undergrad, grad, came back a couple years later and started teaching. Um, you do it in part because it's something you actually love. You know, there's a real joy to teaching. There's a joy when you're – every student is different. They have something different to learn. And when you figure out the key to that lock and you watch them expand and figure out that thing that was their weak spot before, mm. it's joyful. It's magical. It is. Yeah. yeah. Um, because of certain laws that were passed, uh, if USC or any university now hires us, hires an adjunct like me or Peter who has another full-time job or part-time job, and this is just something that we do either because we love it or because we're filling in, if they hire us for two classes or more, they have to give us health insurance. Mm. So it also means that there have been cutbacks in terms of how many classes Mm. an adjunct, not only in, in terms of like there's been a pay stagnancy, we also, a lot of people are losing their health insurance because of the way that hiring has been done. I mean, the, the thing that's that's really challenging about being an adjunct is, A, everything that you're talking about in terms of be having a full-time job and then also, you know, teaching your two, three-hour classes on a weeknight. I'm a single parent. You know, that's totally difficult for me to, like, figure out how to do that, even though I love it. Um, and then find time to read people's work and grade papers and do all the prep that needs to be done and you know when we're not working full time and not being paid fairly for that it makes it really difficult mm-hmm. to enjoy that work yeah so and as people that are like 
clearly passionate about the work, it's a disservice to you and also to the students. I I did go to the day that the AFA filed at USC, um, and it was like beautiful to witness. I am an alumni of the School of Cinematic Arts, um, so I saw a lot of my old professors and people that I had um, learned so much from and like felt supported by in my time at the school. and it was nice to return the favor a little bit. Yeah. Uh, we appreciate it. You guys were awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, how is it going now? Did the school recognize a union as soon as you went in and handed them the paperwork? They were like, yes, we're so sorry. Well, it's, it's probably worth saying that, you know, last semester we got 80% of the faculty at, US, at SCA to sign cards. Mm-hmm. Um, we did it really quickly. Uh, you know, it was very, very fast in terms of organizing timeline. And we did deliver our request to be recognized. Mm-hmm. They didn't voluntarily recognize us. This semester, we're having a vote. And I started hearing from other people. They were losing their 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 second classes in health insurance as well. Some people were being promised they wouldn't lose it, and then they would lose it anyway, mm-hmm. you know? And so um, I kind of saw the writing on the wall, and I was like, I guess I got to go start looking for some other place to take care of myself, you know, um, I lucked out. I, I sold a show to Fox right before the strike, and I, you know, was like, "I'm going to take a, a step away mm-hmm. for a little while." And then some people reached out to me and said, "We're unionizing," and I said, "Oh shoot!" <laughs> because I've been complaining about this for 14 years, mm-hmm. and I guess now, you know, we got to go try and fix things. We got to do something, you know. But you know what people don't realize is that you know we as professors. I mean, you know, sometimes we're doing great. Sometimes we have years when we're not doing great mm-hmm. and we're struggling, right? You know, people think when they hear that we teach at USC that we make a ton of money for doing this and we don't. <laughs> yeah. you know? We sure pay a ton of money to yeah, the school. They, I mean, Where does it go? You paid more <laughs> yeah. for one four-unit class than we made to teach it. It's That's ridiculous. You know, a lot more, right? You paid. You alone paid yes. more. Right. Than one professor than one to right, teach it. Yeah. Right. And so I often would describe teaching at USC was like, you know, drowning while doing something you love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, slowly drowning. Yeah. yeah. You know, and we but, were just talking about this yeah. before this began, but, um, you know, one of the things that the, the university has been sort of saying as as the momentum towards unionization has, has gained steam mm. was, uh, was that, you know, well, you're not really supposed to be an adjunct because you're supposed to make a living at it. You're just supposed to do it because it's something you love, which was the same thing that Carol Lombardini essentially said to the WGA, you know, months and months ago, which is like, you're just lucky to have long-term employment. Mm. And... You know, I, I just keep wondering, like, at what point does capitalism, at what point in capitalism do we get to get paid to do something that we love because we have to get paid to do something? I believe the answer is never. Personally. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the answer is, I think the answer is the only way to do it is to unionize. And, right. you know, sometimes the threatened to strike because obviously they're not going to pay us out of the goodness of their hearts and because we're good at doing our jobs. Right. Thank you for listening to this episode of Third and Fairfax. You can listen and subscribe to Third and Fairfax on Spotify, Apple, and Libsyn. And now watch us on the Writers Guild of America West YouTube channel. Also check out writtenby.com, the Guild's newly relaunched online publication. See you next time. On this day in working class history, the 6th of February.
On the 6th of February 2006, 6,000 workers at the Bridgestone Firestone rubber plantation in Harbel, Liberia, walked out on wildcat strike in protest at low pay, poor conditions, child labour and union corruption. 4,000 of the workers were casual tappers who were required to tap 650 trees per day in return for a payment of $3.38. The pace of work was such that workers could only meet their quotas by using their own children to help them work. Workers also complained about the lack of democracy in their union, the Firestone Agricultural Workers Union of Liberia, and the union withholding union dues. One worker, Lawrence Tamba, age 57, told Iron News, quote, We are living in the plantation beyond human imagination. Most of the housing units us tappers live in are dilapidated. End quote. Three days later, on February the 9th, it was reported that the strike had been suspended, but workers then occupied their union office and demanded a change in union leadership. The strike was eventually called off after two weeks, when President Ellen Johnson's Sirleaf intervened and mediated an agreement from Firestone to build better housing and more schools and clinics for workers and their families. Firestone workers' organising would continue and they would strike again the following year. For sources, maps and all of our anniversaries each day, check out the On This Day section of our Stories app at stories.workingclasshistory.com and if you value our work, support us at patreon.com slash workingclasshistory. Links in the show notes. Theme music by Ricardo Areo. See you tomorrow. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day Sheriff Theodore Middleton and his deputies in Harlan County shot into the house of UMWA organizer Marshall Music, killing his 15-year-old son Bennett. Music organized for the UMWA's District 19. He traveled all over Harlan County. As a district organizer, he was beaten, arrested, and evicted from company housing repeatedly. Some of the mines were organized in Harlan County, but barely. Many coal operators controlled area sheriff's departments and restricted the daily life of miners and their union representatives. Organizing drives started in January of 1937. Union men faced extreme physical violence. Organizers were tear-gassed in early January. Their cars were dynamited later that month. Music and his wife were shot at and warned repeatedly to leave town. Another organizer had his door busted down by deputies and his house ransacked. Music finally agreed to leave town to keep his family safe. But on this day, upon arriving in Pineville, he learned his son had been killed in a firestorm of bullets shot into his house. On March 22nd, the La Follette Committee on Civil Liberties opened hearings into Bloody Harlan. It lasted for six weeks. The Justice Department indicted 69 Harlan County coal operators and law officers for criminal conspiracy in violation of the Wagner Act. Meanwhile, the new National Labor Relations Board answered the UMWA charges and found in the union's favor. The board issued a cease and desist order against interference with union activity and ordered the reinstatement of 60 coal miners. As a result, union membership soared to 9,000. The UMWA would continue for decades to fight to keep Harlan County organized. And that's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. It's just a 
small sample of the amazing programs aired over the last week on more than 100 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows, laborradionetwork.org. You can also find them. Use the hashtag LaborRadioPod on X, Facebook, and Instagram. The Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produce the show, and our social media guru, as always, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. We'll see you next week.